Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 481st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who builds soil quality through carbon management. We're talking with Rivka Fidel about biochar and carbon farming. Dr. Rivka Fidel is currently an assistant professor of practice at the Department of Environmental Science, University of Arizona, teaching introductory level classes in soil science and critical zone science. Hmm, I wonder what that is. She received her PhD in soil science from Iowa State University and her BS in environmental science from Union College. Her research is in soil carbon and nitrogen cycling, specifically examining the efficacy of biochar for improving soil quality and mitigating climate change. Welcome to the show today, Rivka. Are you ready to rock soil? Let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, so I've always really loved all kinds of natural science, understanding how the world works. And I also loved stories. When I was little, my parents would take me to the Museum of Natural History, and I would spend hours looking at the dinosaurs and all the other animals and plants and everything. And I just would not want to leave. And then I also loved to read and write and all these things. So I, I knew I wanted to do something intellectual, probably science, for a long time. And it wasn't until late in high school that I really leaned towards the science end of things. I learned that doing science requires writing and communication, so I wouldn't have to give those things up. And then when I got into college, Union College, that was when climate change was really starting to make the news a lot. Mm-hmm. And it really that really called to me because the things that that seem to be the biggest problems are the things that people don't see every day that aren't salient, that creep up on you. And I just really love the natural world. And I just could not, could not imagine a world where that was degrading and taken away from us. So I started looking into environmental science at that time, just because it was really, you know, had something to do with climate change. Didn't know what I wanted to do exactly with that degree. 
And I found, you know, I love that it integrated all the different natural sciences. I got to do a little bit of everything. And I also, not related to my major whatsoever, but one of my introductory courses had us read The Omnivore's Dilemma. Oh, nice. And yes, so I imagine that's very uh, popular book for among gardeners. If not, I highly recommend it. And that just really opened my eyes to how much agriculture was uh, contributing to the problems of climate change and in addition to uh, pollution that people tend to be a bit more aware of. And I just found it mind-boggling, for example, that we subsidize growing uh, monocrop corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the conventional way of growing it just produces so much carbon dioxide emissions and causes soil erosion, not to mention all the pesticides, herbicides, et cetera. Right. So, so that really inspired me. I wanted to do something more about it. Union College had absolutely no soil science classes or agriculture classes, and I still love it all the same. But I decided to emphasize in chemistry because I liked chemistry. And then um, I took everything that I could about plants because that was the next best thing and still at the time, I had no notion of how much, how much climate change mitigation had to do with plants versus soil or even energy, right? And so I was looking at all these different angles. Where can I make the most difference? I was really inspired by, by this idea of sustainable agriculture, but I didn't know if it was for me quite yet. Uh-huh. So I kept, I kept taking all these science courses, and then I also took environmental ethics. And if there is one class... I'm going to stop you real quick. I actually, (laughs) when I was in college, so I went back to college late in life. I was at Mm -hmm. Arizona State University from 2001, actually 1999 until 2006. And as an undergraduate, I took an environmental ethics class too. It was enlightening. Professor Vitek taught that class. And to this day, I still have... One of the books we read for that, State of the World 2009, it was more of a science book to give us some background, Uh but it had this chapter, A Safe Landing for the Climate, and another chapter about land use to cool the planet. And in those chapters, they described, you know, how we have to go carbon negative at the end of the century. And that was like a big reveal for me because I had always thought, you know, if we stop burning fossil fuels and stop cutting down the rainforest, let the forests grow back, that we'd be on the right track. But we got to do more than that, I think, don't we? Yeah, exactly. We do have to do more than that. We have to make our agriculture sustainable in terms of not being a net emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. But we also have to do something to get the carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere out of the atmosphere. And the reason for that is twofold. Firstly, the carbon dioxide isn't going to come out by itself. And secondly, there's a lot of what we call uh, positive feedbacks. Positive feedback loops, right? Yes. So if you've heard of a vicious cycle or a negative downward spiral, these are the same thing when we're talking about something bad. And so in the case of, of climate change, there's a lot of things where warming causes more warming. So one of them is when the planet warms, the soil warms, microbes eat up more soil organic matter and produce more carbon dioxide. And that causes more warming. Oh, interesting. So, so this, the carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere so far has kicked off this positive feedback loop, this negative spiral. And we are 
we're going to spiral downwards until we do something to get ourselves to go back up. The emissions from fossil fuels create this downward spiral of right. more carbon dioxide leads to more warming, more warming leads yep. to more carbon dioxide from the soil, and that that will keep going unless we do something to reverse it, to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. How do we pull carbon dioxide out of the air? So there are a lot of ways that we could pull carbon dioxide out of the air. The main ones that were in this book that inspired me mm-hmm. and are still in a lot of books are that we can use uh, carbon capture and storage which is putting these specialized kind of scrubbers onto power plants that react with the carbon dioxide. And then you collect that spent material, uh, pull the carbon dioxide back out, and inject it into the ground under oh, pressure. Interesting. Yeah, so that's the, stor- the storage part is, is injecting a gas underground. And there's a lot of concern about it escaping, as you might guess, because you're, you're putting something that at normal pressures would just blow out, just like when you open that soda pop, right? Mm, right. Um, so, so this approach is risky, and it's also still quite expensive. And unless there's a, a large price on carbon uh, greater than about $100 per ton, it's not going to be economical to do that. And furthermore, it's very difficult to pull it out of the atmosphere. Most carbon capture and storage is referring to attaching this to a fossil fuel burning power plant, which only results in neutral emissions if you were to capture all of the emissions. Oh, right. So one of the negative approaches, well, one of the approaches to go carbon negative is to attach one of these scrubbers to a biomass burning plant. So the plants take the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere uh-huh. and then then that is burned and released and that carbon is captured once again. But you still have the problem of where are you going to put this stuff. Right. Some people are, are bubbling their CO2 through algae tanks and it grows algae and then they make biofuel, but that's still going to get burned. Right. So you can use the CO2 many times, but you still have this problem of what are you going to do with it. Some folks want to turn it into back into uh, what we call carbonate rocks. So these are this is found in limestone. So uh, shelled organisms take out carbonate from the ocean and make their shells with mm-hmm. it, and then when they die, it's still there. And this stuff you can identify if you just put some acid, even just vinegar, on it, and it bubbles. You have carbonate. You can do this test with your soil. Oh, interesting, if you want right? To. Yeah, so if we can turn it back into that, that would be great. The problem is it's an energy-intensive process, and we're trying to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, not burn more Burn more fuel. fuel. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Maria Rodale, you know that name, right? Yeah, Rodale Institute. Yeah, she proposed that our soils could hold the carbon dioxide. Ah, you're getting ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> So those are, those are a few approaches which I immediately rejected as not being feasible, and they're certainly not that feasible right now. Uh-huh. Now, if we could get our soil to hold on to it, that would be wonderful. This is, what I was, this is what I first learned way back then and have learned many times over. Uh, if we can get soil to hold on to more of the carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere, then we can make the 
flow of carbon net into the soil instead of net out of the soil. Naturally, microbes are usually degrading that carbon. Uh, They turn it into some stable humus and some carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is usually the the majority, uh, about 75%. And, And then that's year upon year, so you end up with very little of the original carbon. So, and then there's lots of practices that can do this. And these practices collectively came to be known as carbon farming. So Ah, um, (laughs) that's where it came from. Yep. A lot of these are are pitched just as sustainable practices because they build soil health in general. So applying organic amendments like compost and manures, closing that loop, not letting those go to landfill or basically a manure holding pond where they produce more potent greenhouse gases like nitrous oxide and methane. And you can also uh, use cover crops, uh, take other steps to prevent erosion, like planting buffer strips. So these would be like grasses and other perennial plants between a field and a water body. And these catch the eroded particles in addition to nutrients and keep the nutrients out of the water. So... And at Iowa State, they were actually looking at and are still testing uh, what we call prairie strips. So this is part of the strips project. (laughs) And they are putting in these grass strips inside the field, kind of like having stripes, one stripe of of your regular crop and then a stripe of prairie grasses and Uh so on and so forth. And that slows down the movement of the soil. So a lot of, of soil carbon loss actually happens through erosion and not just the microbes munching on it. And another thing you could do to prevent microbes from munching on it is to not till the soil. Because if you till the soil, that gives the microbes more oxygen. Mm-hmm. With that oxygen, then they can then consume more soil organic matter. There's a lot of approaches, and that's based, a combination of those things in addition to things for animal livestock management, like grazing rotations are, were suggested in this book way back, you know, 2009, and they're still accepted today as being effective. Now, what really caught my eye way back when, 2009, was that this one little paragraph among the different organic amendments, uh-huh. compost, manure, and then this stuff called biochar. And it was saying that if you apply this stuff, this charcoal-like material to the soil, it would result in net negative emissions, even more so than some of the other practices. And So a, a net at, negative is positive in this case. Right. It's a good thing. Yes. So net <laughs> right. negative emissions is drawing the carbon dioxide out of the map. So we need to get to net neutral by 2050 Mm -hmm. and net negative by the end of the century. And in order to prevent warming of 2 degrees Celsius or more, and scientists are actually saying we need to aim for 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh So we have to to get to carbon neutral still mid-century, but we have to get even more carbon negative by the end of the century to achieve that. And so, so I looked at this, this biochar idea and thought, why isn't there a whole chapter about this? This is really intriguing. And I, I looked it up, and the way it works is you heat up biomass. So any plant material works. Uh, manure works also, as long as it's dry, ideally. And paper waste, things that 
things that are from a plant recently. They could have gone through an animal or through some, a little bit of processing, but anything from a plant that would otherwise go to waste. So you heat it up and there's this loss of some carbon, but not all of it. And that produces some flammable gases, some oils, and these can be used to produce energy if they're burned. Now the char is the last component, and this is what you would add to the soil. The char has certain properties that make it not tasty to microbes. So it has lots of double bonds, and these form a honeycomb-like structure with little hexagons. And those are just, they're not poisonous unless you've made the biochar in an unadvisable manner. They're not poisonous. They just those bonds are just really hard to break and eat microbes have to break bonds. So the microbes leave this carbon alone and it stays in the soil. Uh huh. So, but how does the biochar then sequester the carbon? Right. So the plant took the carbon out of the atmosphere and the pyrolysis process, the charring process locks it away in this really stable form. And so when you add that to the soil, unlike adding mulch or compost, this is going to stay in the soil for hundreds to thousands of years. Mulch or compost, 85% of that is going to be gone in a year. <laughs> yeah, and we see 90, that. 95% in the next five years. Yep. Whereas biochar, you lose 50 to 75% and you, the remaining 25 to 50% is locked away in this stable form. Wow. So that, that part can stay in the soil for hundreds of thousands of years, and that's long enough to qualify it as carbon sequestration because it's net removal mm-hmm. of carbon from the atmosphere and keeping it out of the atmosphere for the, it's arguable how long is long, long enough, yeah. but generally hundreds to thousands of years do the trick by most standards. Nice. I'm at the urban farm. I have a third of an acre. I'd love to play with biochar. How do I make it here at the house or can I? Uh, you can make it and you can also buy it. So you can, uh, you can purchase a pyrolyzer. There are several uh, biochar companies. One of them was started by my friend Bernardo Del Campo and that's uh, RD Char and he can sell you a small pyrolyzer. I would recommend that if you're in the Midwest, but I know you personally aren't. So, so you can make one yourself. There's a lot of different designs, and I'm happy to send a link along for listeners. But basically, you want to uh, create a structure that will help you keep the oxygen out. So pyrolysis, the process by which you make biochar, it will become combustion if you give it oxygen. You want to smother it, essentially. So the easy way to do that is take two metal barrels, one just a little bit bigger than the other one. Mm-hmm. You take the small one, set it down, fill it up with biomass of your choice. So your uh, yard trimmings, ideally in Arizona, you could just let those dry out and they'll pyrolyze nicely. You put those in the, in the bottom barrel and fill it up most of the way and toss a match in there. Let it light and burn for just a little while, maybe a minute or so. And yeah, so you want, so you have to provide some heat to get the the process started. You're essentially baking your biomass 
little bit high temperature because you want char. Normally, we don't want to make char in our ovens. Right. Uh, we want to eat something. But once you get once you get past about 300 degrees Celsius, you start having a lot more char forming. So this is higher than your broiler goes for the most part mm-hmm. um, in in your oven. So the only way to do that in your backyard is to use some fire. So you you toss your match in there, let it light just a little bit, and then you smother it by putting your other barrel on top, top down. So the um, oh, yes. the top of your barrel is going to go to the bottom. So it's kind of like a very tall set of Petri dishes because Petri dishes, the top part is a little bit wider than the bottom part. Right. And then you, you, let it, you let it char for a while. So it, once it has enough heat to get going, the process is self-sustaining. Assuming you're not putting something unconventional in there like cotton or clothing. So those are plant materials, but high cellulose. So materials that have a good mix of plant components, cellulose, hemicellulose, and lignin, are going to generate enough heat to char themselves. And then once it's done, I just stick it in my compost bin or in the soil? Yeah, you can do either, actually. So... In general, you can put the bio... You, first, you want it for safety. Check that it is cool. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you could stick a meat thermometer in there if you'd like. You want to carefully touch the outside and make sure it's cooled off on the outside, and then it can surprise you on the inside as well. So use a meat thermometer, or just to be safe, you can wait overnight once it's done smoking. You don't want too much smoke because that smoke is actually acts as a uh, greenhouse agent. So it's not a gas, just lots of particles, but those particles cause a very uh, potent local warming. So if you have smoke, it's time to rebuild and ask or, and or ask an expert. Anyway, so once your biochar is cool, uh, you can use it. You can cool it faster by tossing some water onto it. That's called quenching. And at any rate, you want to ideally apply it moist. So if you mix it into your compost pile, you're going to want to add... Uh, unless your compost boil is moist, you might want to add a little bit of extra water. Mm-hmm. Uh, biochar has lots of pores. It likes to suck up water. And, and then that can actually improve the composting process. If you, if you apply it directly, if you apply biochar directly to the soil, it is going to, it's not going to be like compost in that it provides nutrients. Uh, biochar, unless you make it from something very nutrient-dense, like a, a poultry litter, it's not going to provide that much nutrients, a little bit of phosphorus, a little bit of potassium, hardly any nitrogen whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But you can, you can apply it straight to soil. The issue is when it's dry, when the biochar is dry and the climate is dry, it can blow away. So you want to till it in, and yes, that re- releases more carbon dioxide, or mix it in with your compost, and then you can put it on top Just of the soil. Um, yeah. Yes. And then, then irrigate and keep an eye on it. I mean, you might not notice the dust. We actually, we need to test this better. So the idea is that the moist compost will reduce the dust and help form uh, aggregates, clumps of soil, so that the biochar won't blow away. However, this is an, still an area of research. Hardly any, um, any research has been done in the Southwest. There's a few studies out there, but in general, in dry environments, there just hasn't been as much research. Much more research has occurred in the Midwest due to the um, large-scale conventional agriculture going on up yeah. there. And in the Northeast, 
as well. You call it, interesting, you, you call it research, I call it experimenting in my backyard. Yeah, so, so yeah, you can, you can definitely experiment. There's just some things you're not going to be able to see, like emissions and dust, yeah. unless you put a camera on it, literally. So yeah, you can totally make biochar in your backyard. Uh, you can buy a pyrolyzer, you can buy biochar. There's dozens, if not hundred already by now, of, um, of biochar companies in the United States. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for all that information on biochar. So if somebody wanted to dig in deeper, where would they find more information on it? So probably the best place to go is biocharinternational.org. There's a hyphen in there. If it doesn't pop up for you, just plug it into the old Google and it'll come right up. They, if you click around, they have a page about uh, biochar technologies and about making your own biochar, and they have more information about the biochar itself. Excellent. And then you had a friend that makes it? Tell me about him again. Yeah. Yeah. So my friend Bernie is the founder of Char. So it's A-R-T-I-C-H-A-R. And they make biochar in Iowa. And we met while I was doing my PhD. So he was researching the pyrolysis end of biochar. What temperature is best? What pyrolysis method is best? Do you do it fast or do you do it slow? What helps you get those other products out, the gases and the oils, that kind of thing? So he's, he's into the design of pyrolyzers and how that affects the quality of the biochar and the other products. Awesome. Maybe we need to connect and get him on the podcast as well. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love it. Awesome. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Back when I started my PhD, there were a lot of questions still in biochar research. So biochar, the term arguably was coined in 2006, and I was starting my PhD in, in 2010. And there was so much, there was a lot of research that contradicted itself. So there'd be one study saying one thing and another study saying another thing. And this extended to most areas of biochar research. Uh-huh. And what a lot of this comes down to is that not all biochars are created equal. So there are some biochars that have lots of pores for holding water. There are other biochars that have lots of chemicals on the surface that help attract nutrients and then hold on to those nutrients for plants. And people were publishing, and there's nothing, there was, we didn't know any better. People were you know, just doing what analyses they could, uh, that they could justify with the current state of the literature. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to make sense of all this madness. <laughs> so one, one thing that I knew for sure about soil and about the environment in general is that pH means a lot. Oh, yes. And so pH just affects pretty much everything, right? Nutrients and, and how they move, how much the plants can get. Well, and, and the health of the plant all yes, around. Yes, over, yeah. overall. So, and the movement of toxins, too. So I started looking at the effect of uh, biochar on soil pH and how it did that exactly. It usually increases the pH of soil and can be used as a liming agent, but the amount varies. 
And a lot of research had been done without either documenting the pH or documenting how exactly biochar was increasing the pH. And how, how will we know when we've made a biochar before we put it in the soil how much it's going to increase the pH afterwards? So, and that's just so, so important in every part of, of gardening, agriculture, soil science, you name it. And so I started looking into this. And I found a method which I thought would be perfect. It would let me look at what chemicals on the biochar surface were reacting at what pH. And, you know, I thought I could do this relatively quickly. Well, as you might guess, it was not quick. The method that I found did not work. It was giving me negative numbers, all kinds of weird things. I had no idea what was going on. But I noticed that when I mixed the biochar with these different solutions I was using, I was getting colored stuff out, like brown and black. And so I, I, I tried a lot of different things to get rid of those, that colored extract. Uh-huh. And it just, it, it was, you know, science, a lot of, a lot of trial and error. And it took me for this one little thing that was meant to be a small part of a bigger study where I put the biochar in the soil and looked at the, how these properties compared to, so what I was measuring with this method, how it compared to how biochar affected the soil. For this one little part, it took me over a year. Wow. (laughs) But when I was done... I realized, talking with my mentor, David Laird, that we could publish this method. It's like a recipe for everybody who's researching biochar if they want to know what we call them functional groups, these chemicals, what functional groups there are when when biochar is going to be raising the pH, how much they could use this method. And I, I ended up with another paper where you looked at all of the stuff in biochar that increases as a pH, not just the organic stuff, but the inorganic too. So if so, I hear you correctly, you're saying that you invented a measuring tool for biochar. Yes. Awesome. Well, I reinvented one. I reinvented one. Okay, good. <laughs> it's one that didn't it. work. Yeah. It was used for activated carbon, which is quite similar to biochar because you, you pyrolyze it. Uh-huh. So... Uh, biochar isn't isn't like new new. It's people have been adding char to soil for a while. Yeah. The idea of of using it for carbon sequestration is really new. Uh-huh. Have you heard of uh, terra preta? Yes, absolutely. For listeners, it is a soil found in the Amazon that it's believed uh, native Amazonian peoples were adding char to the soil, either intentionally or unintentionally, as part of their trash and the soils to this day are really fertile, where in the Amazon, soils are not typically very fertile. Exactly. So this, this inspired all this biochar research and this idea that, the, that we could add this really stable carbon material to soil. And so there's just been this resurgence in, in interest in adding char to soil that had largely dwindled out since the beginning of the Green Revolution. Yeah. So you basically took a failure... And you turned it into a success. Yeah. So my next question for you is, what do you consider your biggest success? When I was wrapping up my PhD, I had met a lot of, a lot of people, made this network of fellow 
scholar activists, people who really cared about the environment, wanted to do something about it now, not uh-huh. just wait for our research to make an impact. And we caught wind of the impending Bakken pipeline in 2014. So this is the pipeline that inspired Standing Rock and was going to cut through Iowa in addition to the Dakotas, et cetera. So we saw this in the news, and before anybody even had noticed it in the news, we collectively decided we have to do something about this. So me and my friends, who are actually all women and all in the Sustainable Agriculture Program, just got together at, at my friend Angie Carter's house, and we just talked about, you know, what could we do as a small group of people. And we realized that since we knew a lot of other people, and a lot of people, these people were in organizations like our Sustainable Agriculture Student Association that we were in, and like Active Us, which is an environmental activist group that mm-hmm. um, I had been president of for a time, a student group. So we realized we knew all these people that, and these groups that individually might not be able to stop the pipeline, but if we got them together, might be able to do something. So we all agreed to reach out to our contacts and see if we could just set up kind of a town hall meeting about this. And we thought, you know, maybe we'd get 20 people or something. But in just a few months, we were able to round up over 100 people all at this one meeting, listening to panelists basically uh, talking about, you know, what the impact of the pipeline would be, how could we stop it legally, what the impact could be to socially uh, bring possibly starting these um, like boom towns that have a predominantly male population and could it could lead to discrimination and abuse. Mm-hmm. So we were really we were really inspired by how many people showed up, and we kept this network in place, and we became the Iowa Bakken Pipeline Resistance Coalition. Oh, and interesting. We worked with lots of different groups, including local tribes, the Meskwaki, and with Bold Iowa and Bold Nebraska, who were all fighting this pipeline. And and somehow, even though we weren't, we had done other activism things before that, you know, we, we try really hard, but we can barely get this into the press. Well, these hashtags just took off on social media and... Before we knew it, thanks to everyone operating across these state lines, nearly everyone you talked to knew what hashtag no dapple or hashtag no Bakken meant. And suddenly Standing Rock started, and we were able to send a contingent up there representing Iowa and support the tribes there. So something that, even though the pipeline ended up being built, and yes, it is build, and it's still facing some legal uh, hurdles, the, even though the pipeline got built, we threw many other people through our ability to build networks, and thanks to everyone who is working with us, we're able to bring the pipeline to the forefront of people's minds, and, and that we are able, and that the tribes themselves their help were able to bring attention to tribal rights also was just profoundly amazing. Nice. Well, that kind of probably speaks into what drives you in life. 
Because I can I can hear the passion behind your speaking. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely driven by a need to help people and and basically all life that cannot help itself. And fighting climate change is first and foremost there. But I I do feel this profound injustice at at social social wrongs and the the diminishing of the American middle class and just people around the world suffering from economic and social crises. Yeah. So so these things, if I'm not careful, can pull me into far oh, too many directions. Boy, but I they heard still that. Are, they still directed carefully. I still feel I still feel that I can I can do my part. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, one book for our listeners? In these times, I really like books that give me hope instead of just telling me how bad things are. Because yes. as a scientist, I know exactly how bad things are. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm with you there. <laughs> we keep adding these layers of precision to just how bad. But the things that we really need to hear are, what can we do about it? What yep. are we doing about it? Yeah. And so as a general panacea to those things, I highly recommend Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. Hope in the Dark. It, it was actually written during the Bush administration, mm-hmm. and it's about how activists and what we would now call, you know, justice warriors, but they weren't called that back then, how activists around the world actually did, did make a difference in that time, despite the unfriendly political situation. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's really timely, but it's also just a really good, a really good guide and motivator. Because if we just look at the problems, it's, it's so hard to see the way forward. You just get yeah. paralyzed. Yep. And this, this points us to successes that we didn't, a lot of us didn't know were happening. What one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? So I'd say no matter where you are, but especially if you've moved recently, put down roots. Mm. So (laughs) get to know where the place you're living. It's easy to become blind to wonderful things that people are working on locally that you could contribute to to help fight climate change or whatever your calling is. And that act of doing can really give you hope because you can see the changes happening so much better if you're the one contributing to them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Rivka. You're welcome. How can our listeners find you? So I have a Twitter. It's just at Rivka Fidel. So that's R-I-V-K-A then F as in Frank, I, D as in dog, E-L. Perfect. And my email is the same, but it has a period in between. So it's just rivka.fidel at gmail.com. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Rivka. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.